And as we uh, begin today, uh, would you please uh, join me as I pray? Loving Heavenly Father, as we uh, engage with this topic and this passage today, we pray that you would speak to us powerfully by your word. You would help us to place our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus and to understand the right way what it means for you to be the judge of all the earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start today to tell you a little bit about how I approach the Bible. Um, I believe the Bible is God's word. Um, I believe it's good and holy and that what it says is good. Um, and I believe God says it because we need to know it. Um, I also believe that God knows better than I do. Do you believe that God knows better than you do? It's really important when you come to read the Bible because you read stuff that you might not be wholly comfortable with. Um, and I believe, therefore, that if we feel embarrassed by God's word, the problem is with us and not with the Bible. The other thing I want to say about how I approach the Bible is that I believe that if God's word majors on a topic, like it's something it talks about all the time, then we should probably talk about it all the time too. It's probably very, very important if God's word talks about it all the time. The judgment of God is something that God's word talks about all the time. Uh, We've been looking at the book of Isaiah um, and basically every chapter it mentions the judgment of God, if not talks about it in some detail. God is angry with sin. He will judge the world decisively in his anger. Uh, Today, basically, what I want to go some way, hopefully, to convincing you of is that is very, very good news. It is good news. It's not necessarily pleasant news. It's not comfortable news, but it is good news. God is judging the world. He will judge the world decisively in his anger. It's still terrifying, but it's a good thing. That's what I want to show you today uh, from the Bible, hopefully. But... The judgment of God is something we feel embarrassed about. It's something we feel so embarrassed about or that people think we should feel so embarrassed about that all you have to do is kind of mention it and this harsh... And, well, recently, there was um, a billboard put up by a group that thinks scripture shouldn't be put in schools. Um, and this is the theme they concentrated on. Here's the billboard they put up. If I can get the uh, thing to work, wonderful. Here's the billboard that put up. Um, did you sign your child up for this? God says you are stuck in your sin and need to be rescued from his judgment. It's a quote from a a scripture uh, manual, a a handout booklet thing that's actually for year 9 and 10 students. Um, Scripture in schools, opt out now. Now, it's amazing, you know, because the only problem I have with this sign is they've made it look like that's the scripture materials for the the six-year-olds. It's actually not. That's out of a year 9 and 10 booklet for scripture. So they've been a bit dishonest in that way. But then again, God says you are stuck in your sin and need to be rescued from your judgment. Lots of people are going to see that. I'm saying, amen, preach it. The only thing I want to add that I wish they added was, and that's why Jesus came to save you from judgment. I wish they added that, but that's pretty good. But the whole mentality of putting this billboard up is that God's judgment is really very, very embarrassing and shameful that we should believe such a thing. It's so embarrassing that surely everybody would want to opt their kids out of Scripture if they knew we ever talked about God's judgment and needing to be saved from our sins. Uh, the group is called Fairness in Religions and Schools. Um, you, you wonder, why, why do they think Scripture shouldn't be taught in public schools? I'm going to go on a quick t- tangent here. I think it's worthwhile, because Scripture in schools is a big deal at the moment. I'm not going to talk about it at length. But um, there is a widespread assumption out there that the only acceptable speech in kind of public places and in institutions and that sort of thing is non-religious speech. You're not allowed to talk about God. It's a very big assumption in our society. And I just want to say, don't buy into the lie. Says who? 
you're not allowed to talk about God in your workplace, in the schools. Says who? People will say, oh, it's separation of church and state. You heard this? To which my answer is, that's the American Constitution. And you've misunderstood the American Constitution. Let's talk about the Australian Constitution. What the Australian Constitution says, section 116, is the government won't establish a state church. And that's about it. So we've got a Church of England in England. It's a state church. There won't be a a Church of Australia, like a state Church of Australia. Do Do you follow what I'm saying? That's what it says. What it further says, think about this, look it up, section 116 of our Constitution. The government must not prohibit the free exercise of any religion. That's what it says. Groups like Furious will say to us, oh no, we need to uphold the secular principles of the Constitution. It's very interesting because the word secular has changed a lot over time. Um, it's worth being aware of that. So people, what, what, what do you hear when you hear the word secular? It means non-religious, doesn't it? Is that what we mean? It means not talking about God, not talking about Jesus, not talking about any religious stuff. It's not actually what it originally meant, but um, that's what people say. My reply is, Australia is non-religious, we can't talk about religion. My reply is, says who? The Constitution actually protects our right to talk about the Lord Jesus in public places. So speak about him. More than that, Jesus commands us to tell the gospel to people. So don't buy into the lie. I'll leave that topic there for another day, but I want to come back to this word secular because it's actually very important to what we were talking about today. The word secular actually originally meant of this age. A secular government is a government of this era that we live in before Jesus returns. It's a Christian word, the word secular. It's not saying non-religious. It's saying their authority is limited to the present era we live in before Jesus returns to be in control of everything directly. That's what secular means. So if you read Romans 13, you'll hear that secular government, the rulers of this age, their job is to be servants of Jesus even without knowing it and to bring justice to their nations and, and their societies that they rule over. Read Romans 13. They've got a very important job. It's why we should pray for them. That's why I prayed for them a minute ago. They have the important job of maintaining justice and order while we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Now, just flick over to Isaiah 61. This is the passage that Stuart preached on last week. And what I'm talking about today is very closely um, related to that. Isaiah 61. It talks about God's timeline for history, and it talks about two phases. Just look at verse 2, I think. It talks about um, this preacher whose job is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is Jesus. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Here's the timeline. We live in the year of the Lord's favour, where secular authorities have authority to bring justice to society, order society, that sort of thing. But where our job as the church is to preach Jesus. Because today is the year of God's favour, where he gives the opportunity for people who place their faith in him to have eternal life, to have their sins forgiven and to escape what comes next. Because as people trust in Jesus, they are ushered into Jesus' kingdom and we have this great hope in the future. But there's this thing in between. You actually can't have the new creation, the kingdom of God, without the thing in between. The thing in between is the day of vengeance. Do you notice in verse 2 there's a year followed by a day? The day of vengeance, the day of God's judgment has to occur in order for the new creation for God's kingdom to come about. What I want you to understand today, um, a really important way of thinking about God's judgment and salvation, they go together. You can't separate them. They go together, intertwined all through Isaiah, all through the Bible. The reason basically is because creating order means getting rid of disorder. 
Getting rid of sin means getting rid of sin. How can you have a sinless society without getting rid of sin? How can you have an evilless society without getting rid of evil? In order for there to be a kingdom of God, there has to be a judgment of God to bring it about. And so in this year of the Lord's favour, we warn people. We don't just say there's salvation, the positive side, there's salvation in Jesus. We warn people. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And it is a frightening thing. You cannot afford to face the judge on your own two feet without knowing him as saviour. Salvation and judgment, two sides of the same coin. They always go together. So last week in Isaiah 61, you'll notice that passage if you read it, it kind of camps out on the theme of salvation, that side of the coin, the positive side of the coin. Um, The vengeance side of the coin, well, that's chapter 63, and that's what we're having a look at today. It mentions salvation, but it camps out on the theme of God's judgment. Would you have a look at chapter 63 with me? We'll just go through verse by verse. And what I want you to imagine as you look at chapter 63, is there's a watchman. Your perspective of uh, being the watchman on, like on duty on the walls of Jerusalem, looking out. And, and you look out and you see something rather surprising as you, as you look out from the, um, the walls. In the earlier passage, we've heard about the watchman seeing God's salvation arrive. Now he sees the other thing arrive. First, chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this coming? This is the watchman. Who is this coming from Edom? From Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson, who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save, is the response. Really unexpected sudden arrival of this figure in the distance. He's coming from Eden. Uh, Edom, what you need to know about Edom, Edom is kind of a symbol for evil in the book of Isaiah, for reasons I won't go into. Um, so he's coming from, a, it's a symbol of the world in evil, basically. So the figure is coming from Edom, the world opposed to God. That's, that's kind of what's going on there. Fresh from visiting the world that stands in opposition to God, and the figure, even from a distance, the watchman can tell he's extremely impressive. His garments are bright. He strides like a man, like a real man. You know what I mean? He's confident. He's purposeful. He's robed in glory and splendor. He's immensely powerful. You can tell it even from a distance. And his massive voice travels across the vast distance between them and says, It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Here is Israel's saviour, fresh from achieving salvation for them. And he gets closer. Verse 2. And the watchman sees more things because he's gotten closer. He asks him, why are your garments red like those of one treading the wine press? Eden wasn't just um, a symbol for evil. It was also known for it making wine. Um, it made a lot of wine. It was basically the Hunter Valley, except it was also evil. Okay, That's, that's Edom. Um, so he interprets what he sees in, in, in that kind of way. He says, oh, you come from Edom, you come from Hunter Valley. You look like you've been treading the wine press. And what do you do with a wine press? Well, you stand on top of the grapes and you stamp them and juice squirts all over the place. And if you're wearing robes and they're not hitched up high enough, or maybe if they're hitched up real high, uh, you can get an awful lot of red juice on you. And he looks at these guys, he gets closer and goes, "Why? you're a mighty warrior. Why have you been stamping the wine press? The figure plays along with the watchman's interpretation of what he sees except he changes it. He plays along with the winepress sort of picture. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, verse 3. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and stained all my clothing. It's a gruesome image. He's been stamping the winepress all right, but he hasn't been stamping grapes. And that isn't grape juice on his robes. His robes are drenched with the blood of his enemies. 
Verse 4, he says, It was for me the day of vengeance. The day had come, the year, sorry, for me to redeem had come. See that word redeem? Redeem means to save people out of slavery, to save people out of slavery to sin and death and evil and judgment and all of these things. I've come to redeem my people. And what does that mean? Other side of the coin? He's come to do judgment because it's the only way salvation can happen. He's come to do the day of vengeance, to bring about salvation. The word vengeance is actually more personal than that. It's not just that he judges. It's that he's personally invested in it. It's that God is offended by the evil of the earth. He doesn't just kind of sit back, uh, not caring either way, whether he punishes us or not. He's deeply offended by the evil of the earth. He's deeply offended particularly that his people are oppressed and the evil done to his people. Verse 5. I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave me support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. There's a couple of times we hear in the passage, the warrior looks about, this this guy looks about and goes, there's nobody helping me do this job of of justice and judging the world. Nobody. It's just me. And the point seems to be that the only person capable of bringing this judgment, this justice to the earth is God. Everyone else will be incompetent, unjust, and will probably commit evil themselves if they try and bring justice to the earth. He's alone. He did it himself. Only God can do it. It's important for us to remember as Christians... Uh, This is what the Bible says on the screen there. Um, One of the things the Bible says about revenge, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's God's job to judge the world. It's God's job to judge people. And he'll do it properly. Verse 6, I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath I uh, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. There's no battle here. It's squashing ants stuff. There's no opposition. People get what they deserve at the judgment of God. And it's decisive and it ends quickly. Salvation can only come because the judgment of God is finished. And that's what he's come to proclaim victory to his people. I'm here mighty to save because I've done judgment now. Our second reading was from uh, Revelation chapter 19 and amidst all of that you heard a vision of the end of the world, the final victory of God over evil. It's after Jesus came and so we have more information, more detail about the judgment at this point and we learned that this mighty warrior is in fact the Lord Jesus. In that passage is on a white horse, his robe again is dripping in blood and we hear about Jesus. Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. See something something that happens when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus. You know, you read the stories of Jesus and what he did. His first coming was actually about saving and not judging. It was about that side of the coin. And so he was very gentle. He was very meek. He even meekly went to his own death. He didn't oppose any of them. He just gave, gave into it. He gave himself over to death. And so you can get that side of Jesus and think that's all there is to Jesus. He's just kind of soft, basically. But this is the Jesus who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He's the warrior who executes the day of judgment. And that's what the second coming's about. Um, I'm sure some of you have read the Narnia books, yeah? The Narnia books, C.S. Lewis Narnia stories, the first one in particular, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, there is a very good reason why C.S. Lewis made the... It's an allegory of Christianity, right? And um, there's a very good reason C.S. Lewis made his figure for Jesus a massive lion, <laughs> 
Because in the scene where Aslan, the lion, dies for the sins of his people, his mane's shaved and he's spat on, he's beaten and all that sort of stuff, but the witch and the, the, the villains who are doing it are absolutely terrified the whole time because he's still a lion. And they're watching him just going, if he changes his mind, we're dead in an instant. Like, he's still a lion. And it's only when he dies that they kind of calm down a bit, except they haven't understood there's a resurrection. And when the lion comes back, he'll be fierce in his judgment. That's the Lord Jesus. And Revelation 19 thinks that's really, really good news, that Jesus is coming second time to do that job. Do you know what the word hallelujah means? The word hallelujah means praise God. It's what we say when we've got great things to thank God for. God saved us. Praise God. So the Bible says praise God lots of times. But this, this little word hallelujah appears four times in the entire Bible. All four times it appears in the Bible are in Revelation 19, 1 to 6. And every single time God's people sing hallelujah is when God is judging the world. Praise God. God is judging the world. He's finally done it. He's bringing salvation because he's brought judgment. God judging the world is good news. Hallelujah. Now, I don't expect you to be perfectly comfortable with what I've been talking about today. If we're comfortable with Jesus, we haven't understood Jesus, right? We certainly haven't understood the second coming. But I want to tell you something that convinced me even more that the judgment of God is a good thing. Um, there's this book called The Locust Effect. Has anybody read The Locust Effect? I know Stuart over here has. He struggled with it as I have. Um, the Locust Effect is a book Stuart recommended to me. Um, it is both a very, very important book and it's a very, very horrible book. It is about poverty in the third world and what life is like for them. Um, I learned that you and I have lived extremely, extremely sheltered lives. Um, we talk about growing up and entering the real world. As far as these people are concerned, you and I have never entered the real world. Um, it is extraordinary what they live with. Do you know what the greatest need of the poor today is? This is the argument of the book. What's the greatest need of the poor in the world today? It is not food. It is not education. It is not medicine. They need all those things. Those things are important, but that is not the greatest need. Their greatest need is freedom from violence. They need justice. That's, that's their greatest need. And uh, you read some of this book and you have to put it down and walk away for a while. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you some of the stats. I won't tell you some of the stories because I'd weep. Um, I'm not talking about uh, them suffering violence in war. I'm talking about poor people suffering violence from their neighbours in countries that aren't at war because the poor of our world live under complete and utter lawlessness. 2.5 billion people effectively don't have laws that protect them at all. I say effective rule of law because in their countries there's things called police, there's things called courts, there's things called laws, but those things don't work for poor people. And so in those countries it is illegal to murder, to rape, to torture and to do enslave people. But in practice in the developing world, poor people live in constant daily fear of being murdered, raped, tortured, enslaved and the law offers them no protection and the courts offer them no justice. Why are you sitting there so safe today? It's, I've grown up with it. Why shouldn't I be safe? Like I just, I, I'm, the world's safe. The, world, the reason Australia's safe is because we have police that work and courts that work, and basically because they can do coercive violence and law enforcement when people break the law, and because people are afraid of them, because basically it works. And so that's what saves us from predatory violence in our society. But it's places where people haven't learned that the police can do their job. It's out of control. 
Do you know what the biggest employer on the African continent is today, bar none? Private security. It's about seven times larger than the police force. Because people know that if you've got the money, the way to be safe is to hire security guards because the police can't help you. And it's like that in a lot of countries. They've got security guards, four or five times as many security guards as police. And they have got their own dispute resolution processes because the courts don't work because policing is ineffective. What do you think that does for the experience of poor people? Where do they go when there's injustice? They don't, they, they don't go anywhere. They've got nowhere to go. I'll give you some stats here that are heartbreaking, but I think you need to hear it because the judgment of God is good news. Women in poverty are some of the worst off people. Uh, the stats for rape in the third world are absolutely abominable. 49% of Ethiopian women, 48% of Ugandan women, 62% of Peruvian women, 35% of Indian women, 34% of Brazilian women, and so on and so on, and it's the tip of the iceberg because they don't report it because nothing will be done. I think what really did it for... Stuart and myself in this book was the example in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa where the enrolment of girls in school declines as they hit adolescence. And the reason is because it is far, far too likely that they will be raped on the way to school. And so their parents don't send them to school. They don't need education. They've got education, a lot of them. They've got access to education, except you'd be raped on the way. And that's before you consider the enormous evil of trafficking girls as a business. Friends, as you know, there are more slaves today than at any other point in human history. Most of them live in cities where it's illegal to own slaves, but they're too poor, and so law enforcement doesn't do anything for them. Gary Hogan, the the writer of the book, once asked a slave why he didn't go to the police to ask for help. And this is where we just don't get it, right? He says, why don't you go to the police and ask for help? He says, no, no, the police, we don't go to the police. The owner pays the police to come to us to beat us. That's how it works. The police are just another gang in a lot of places, for poor people, that is. For billions of people in our world, friends, life is profoundly unjust and filled with fear of violence from predators. The world needs the Lord Jesus to come and judge and do his work. Judgment is good news. And organisations like International Justice Mission that Gary Hawkman's involved in, I think he leads it, and, and governments can improve and things can improve in the here and now, but ultimately justice will not happen until the Lord Jesus comes to judge the earth. The passage focused on vengeance, though, and it focused on the fact that what God takes most seriously is the oppression experienced by Christians, and Christians are often the worst off. And this book helped me actually get some things in perspective. Um, when I, when I went to Bible college, there was an African man there doing his PhD, and um, he told us about um, his village was massacred, um, and, and there will be no justice in this world for that village. It's just not how it works. This is the real world. Uh, when I was a student minister at Ingleburn Anglican Church, I preached Luke chapter 12 and wondered how it applied to the people in front of me. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, don't fear those who can only kill the body and do no more. Fear God who can throw the body and the soul into hell. You should fear God. Don't fear people who can only just kill you physically. And so I preached this passage, and and you're wondering, how does this relate to the people in front of me? And and it's an Anglican church that's like a traditional one. You know, it's like physically it's like a corridor, and we practice all three sacraments at this church. You know, there's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and shaking the preacher's hand on the way out. Um, That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. I thought it was funny. Um, 
So I'm, I'm there getting my hand shook on the way out, and, and one guy's very deliberately last in line, and on the way out he wants to talk to me, and he says, thank you for preaching that passage. Um, this week I heard that my pastor has been murdered in, in, my, in my village. Um, they gathered for church on Sunday morning, and people came in with machetes, and they chopped this man up in front of the congregation. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear God. Trust in Jesus. He was, he was very thankful for the message I preached. Extraordinary. But this is the world for a lot of people, and there will be no justice for people in this age. Jesus needs to come and do his job. Now, in situations like this, people need to know Jesus. But what do they need to know about Jesus? Here's some things they need to know about Jesus. They need to hear the Jesus who says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Alfred, the guy I told you about, his village was massacred. Extraordinary example of that. But that is not all they need to hear. They also need to hear the words of the Lord Jesus who says, Don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. They need to hear that. They need to hear about the Jesus who, when he returns, his robe will be stained with the blood of their oppressors. They need to hear about that Jesus, Jesus the judge, who brings vengeance to the earth. Do you know what we're praying for when we say the Lord's Prayer and we say, your kingdom come? We're praying, Jesus, come and do your work of judgment, crush evil, replace it with perfect peace and justice. That's what we're praying. That means he needs to be the writer, stained with the blood of the oppressors, destroying evil from the world. Now, I have focused today on the bigger problem, but I would be remiss in my responsibility if I didn't make it more personal. When Jesus returns, he won't do half the job. He'll deal with evil comprehensively. And so I want to ask you today, are you ready for the judgment of God? Are you confident that when Jesus returns, you will be okay. Romans chapter 2 is something that strikes me a great deal because it says that when Jesus judges the world, the secrets of our heart will be put on display and God will judge not only our deeds but the secrets of our hearts and everything we've done and thought and said. It'll be comprehensive and proper and full and just in the end. If you've never been convinced that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy, you will be convinced on that day, I guarantee you. You will be convinced on that day. But you must not be convinced for the first time on that day. You need to be convinced today that you need Jesus' mercy. Because when on that day you are finally convinced, it will be too late. It will be too late. So I want to warn you directly, if you're a person who doesn't trust in Jesus, who died for your sins yet... Do not walk out of here today without trusting in him because he will return. You may not hear a message like this again and you may not have another opportunity. There is no guarantee you'll have another chance to turn to Jesus. Please talk to us. Please get it sorted out. Please leave confident that you're standing in the mercy of Jesus, trusting in him, repenting of your sins. Just don't leave today without talking to me if you're not confident about that. I actually want to finish by uh, reading you the lyrics of a song, which we're probably never going to sing in church. It's by John Newton, the writer of probably the most well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. We know Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace has sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We need to know that we're wretches in need of God's mercy. But this book is called Day of Ju- this, this song's called Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. And 
it gets the earnestness with which we should take this really well, I think. It captures the importance of God's judgment for us and it begs the sinner to flee to Jesus. So let me just read this to you and just think it through. Day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark, the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious saviour, own me on that day for thine. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken, by his look prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? Horrors past imagination will surprise your trembling heart. When you hear condemnation, hence a cursed wretch depart. Thou with Satan and his angels have thy part. Satan, who now tries to please you, lest your timely warning take, when that word is passed will seize you, plunge you in the burning lake. Think, poor sinner, thy eternal all is at stake. But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near ye, blessed. See the kingdom I bestow, you forever Show my love and glory no. Under sorrows and approaches, it's the final verse. May the thought, this thought your courage raise. Swiftly God's great day approaches. Sighs shall then be turned to praise. We shall triumph when? When the world is in a blaze. Friends, is it possible we sanitize our Christian faith far too much? Do we know what's at stake? It's only when Jesus the judge comes that we experience salvation. The two go together. And so we pray for Jesus to bring his kingdom and to bring justice to the earth. But our mission statement of our church is also we long to see new life in, come to, in, new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the growing southwest. Why do we long just so they can come to church? Just so they can feel a bit better about life in the here and now? No, we long for that so people would flee the wrath of God. Free the anger of Jesus, the judge of the earth, and find salvation in his name. That's, that's the reason. And we need to warn people. Friends, I would like to um, offer you today a, a time of just to silently reflect on what we've taught, thought about. You might want to take some time to pray for those. If you're a Christian and those people who don't know Jesus, why don't you pray for them now? Because this is heavy, weighty stuff. This is what life's about. This is why this age, this year of God's favour exists. Pray for them now and um, I'll finish up in a minute. Heavenly Father, we uh, 
very earnestly want to commend to you today the people we've just prayed for. And we want to, uh, seeing as we're New Life Anglican Church in Oran Park, we want to commend to you the people of Oran Park. Would you please show mercy to them and cause a great many of them to be saved, to turn to Jesus? Please give us opportunity to share Jesus with them while there is opportunity for them to find life in Jesus. Please bring revival to Oran Park. Father, we also know that there will not be justice on the earth until Jesus returns. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.